Welcome to the first episode of the Out of the Shadows Project podcast. The Out of the Shadows Project is funded by the British Academy. It aims at establishing a network of early career researchers working on issues relating to intelligence, espionage and covert action in American and British history. More importantly, it aims at engaging secondary school teachers and students with this research by providing resources, organizing events, and organizing a series of seminars in various schools around the country. If you're interested in the project or would like to participate, you can learn more on our website, outoftheshadowsproject.com. That's outoftheshadowsproject.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter at OOTSproject. Once again, OOTSproject. I'm very excited to introduce the first guest for our podcast, Harry Hemming. We met Harry in London. He is an author of several non-fiction books, including a travel log of his adventures in the Middle East and the biography of Geoffrey Pike, a spy and a genius during the Second World War. We met him, however, to discuss his latest book. The book title is M, Maxwell Knight, MI5 Greatest Spy Master, published by Preface Publishing. I have to say I love the book. I'm not an expert in UK intelligence and espionage, as I follow more the American side, such as the CIA. So the book was for me fascinating as both a biography of Maxwell Knight, one of the early MI5 spy masters, but also a collective biography of Britain between the 1920s and the early 1940s. In the podcast, you will hear us talk about various issues, including Maxwell Knight's life, his tradecraft and career, his successes and failures, but also the British political environment at the time, the evolution of espionage, the mental and psychological toll that espionage takes on spies, and what the book can teach us for current debates regarding intelligence, technology, and the nature of spying. If you like the podcast, please make sure to share it on Facebook and Twitter, and to check it out on SoundCloud. So without further delay, here is Henry Hemming. We're here with Harry Hemming, author of M, The Life of Maxwell Knight, MI5 Greatest Spymaster. Harry, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting us here. And we're here to discuss your book, which, as I mentioned, I loved, because for me it was an eye-opener, because I know very little about British intelligence services, and, and hopefully I will know more by the end of this podcast. So our first question and my first question would be, why did you decide to focus on this topic? Why M and why this specific time? It was mainly to do the last book I wrote, which uh, was about a Soviet agent, a man called Jeffrey Pike. He was actually a very small-time Soviet agent. Um, but MI5 was very interested in him. And, um, and so during my research for that book, I began to read a lot of declassified MI5 documents. And I became fascinated by what I began to, to find out. And I suppose I realized that as a a historian today, this is one of the most exciting places to be to be researching. There are so many new documents that are released every few months into the National Archives from certainly the MI5 archives, among others, um, that the picture keeps changing and it becomes richer and more detailed with time. So I was fascinated by this period because of the amount of new stuff that has come out. But then beyond that, when I found out about Maxwell Knight 
and I realised that there was a new book waiting to be written. I thought this would be a, a fantastic opportunity just to explore this period and a really intriguing, conflicted man who's hugely talented but also someone who I think was haunted by, by his past. Oh, this is a good segue to my second question because what I found really interesting in the book is that there is clearly a lot of research that from my perspective I would describe as academic research, so going through archives and finding new documents and so on. But there is also a lot of what we would call investigative journalism. So how, can you tell us a bit more of how was the process of researching this book, of finding these documents and revealing these new secrets, mm. in a sense? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the bulk of it was going to the National Archives in Kew and um, ploughing through just hundreds, well, thousands of documents. And that was the sort of the, yeah, the meat and drink of the whole thing. But beyond that, I became intrigued by the identities of some of the, the agents who were working for this man, Maxwell Knight, who um, was in charge of MI5's agent running section during the 1930s. And they're referred to in these documents by code names such as M2, MA, MB, MC. And if you go through enough material, you begin to get a picture of what each of these different people were like. But of course, you don't see the identities. And I realized if I finessed this, in other words, if I found more material from other archives, and also if I looked online at databases such as the ones that you have on Ancestry.com or Find My Past and things like that, that I might be able to possibly work out who these people really were. And I mean, the next question to ask is, you know, is there, is there actually a reason to do that? Is it important to know who these people are? Is it just prurient curiosity? <laughs> and there was certainly a part of it that was just, I was intrigued by the puzzle and it was yeah. a challenge. And I, I wanted to know who they were for that reason. That was one of the things. But beyond that, by knowing the identity of these people who worked for MI5, I could then get a sense of where they'd come from, what they sacrificed in order to work for Maxwell Knight, but also I could find out about them later on in life and get a sense of, I suppose, the sacrifices they made, in other words, the effect of their work on MI, in MI5 on them later on in life. So quite a few of the agents that I found out about had a difficult time later on. Some suffered from symptoms very similar to PTSD, uh, some became alcoholic, some became obese, others began to have um, particular health problems related to stress. And this, I suppose, opened up a new dimension to what I was looking at. In other words, what does it take to work for MI5? What did these people give to, uh, to work for not just MI5, but also their spymaster, M, someone they, um, they were particularly devoted to? So yeah, it was um, a combination of archive work, looking online, and um, and then beyond that, just um, I suppose a basic detective work, trying to yeah. uh, imagine, what reads make like connections, well. which uh, which you might not otherwise make. I mean, so many interesting things there. I think we'll come back later on to this discussion of, if you want, the physical and emotional toll that being a spy or working as a spy takes on on people. And I think towards the end of the book, you have a sort of call for more transparency about the life of these agents mm. so that their life can be told in a more complete way. But if we can go back to something else you said in terms of characteristics of what it takes to be a spy, what you need to have to be a spy, this is to an extent, to a large extent, a biography of M. Mm. What do you think were his characteristics or his early life experiences that made him such a good spy master, a man 
so able to move from being a spy to then becoming a spy master. Well, I think on paper, he would not have made a good spy. If you looked at just his bare qualifications, um, he had very little, uh, sort of really concrete uh, qualifications to make him a good spy. He, um, by the time he was taken on by a private intelligence agency, he'd spent a year as a civil servant, two years as a sailor, and two years teaching games at a prep school. He'd been a paint salesman as well, that was it. So his CV was not hugely impressive. But if you look beyond the CV, there was one part of his early life which I think played a huge part in the, the spy master he became later. And that was, unusual as it may sound, that was in fact his experiences as a boy looking after lots and lots of different animals. So he had this obsession when he was younger with going out into the woods and fields surrounding his home, picking up injured birds or mice or lizards or anything like that, and then looking after them, so taking them back into his room, watching them, really carefully observing them, giving them what they needed, when they needed it. And although he had no idea of it at the time, he was eight, this, I think, gave him some of the qualities which then allowed him to become this extraordinarily gifted spy master when he finally got to MI5. This is quite interesting because collecting and caring for animals would become something that he carries on throughout his life. Mm. And it is in a sense, second career of radio and TV personality as well. So. You mentioned in, this, in the answer that it gets in touch with a sort of non-professional intelligence agency. Can you tell us a bit more about this non-professional intelligence agency and why they picked him mm. and how the intelligence agency fit, if you want, in the British political context at the time, what was going on yeah. at the time? It was um, something called the McGill Organization, and it was set up and run by a guy called Sir George McGill, who was a right-wing very rich industrialist. And, uh, and he was somebody who, in the years immediately after the First World War, decided that the greatest threat faced by Britain was the danger of international communism. And as I said, he had the money and he wanted to do something about this. He was also friends at that time with Vernon Kell, who was the head of MI5. And he knew from Vernon Kell that MI5 was limited in what it could do, both legally, but also in terms of the money that it had. So with help from Kell, in other words, from MI5, George McGill sets up his, um, his own intelligence agency. And he starts doing the kind of work that MI5 would have liked to have done. So he starts getting his own private agents into the Communist Party, into trade unions, into left-leaning organizations. And he tries to find out about when strikes are going to happen or any other industrial action, and tries to do everything he can, really, to limit the advance and the popularity of socialism in Britain. So that roughly is the organization that he set up. And he then recruits, because he has quite a big organization, he needs to take on a lot of different agents. So he has a number of talent spotters out in the field. And generally, these are looking for people who appear to be capable of keeping a secret, who are patriotic, who are right-wing as well, that's, that's mm -hmm. a big part of it, and, um, and who have whatever the talent spotter thinks it might take, to be a good spy. And there's a guy called John Baker White who happens to meet Maxwell Knight, the subject of my book, at um, an event staged by a right-wing group. And he thinks, for reasons that we don't necessarily know, that Knight has what it takes. Mm -hmm. So he then puts him in touch with Sir George McGill and they have this conversation after which McGill decides that Knight might just, um, might just be able to do this. But I suppose it's worth 
underlining that um, there's always an, an element of risk. You'll never know for sure when you take someone on like that, that they will make a really good undercover spy. There are very few things that prepare you directly for the experience of infiltrating an organization, befriending the people that you then have to spy on. And of course, as you get closer to them, what you're doing feels more like a betrayal. And, um, and this is something that a lot of people um, find it very difficult to continue to do. So, um, so yeah, I think kind of part of the skill in, in what McGill did was spotting people who might have what it takes. But then the other part is keeping them going, keeping them engaged and interested in the work and also steering them through some of the difficulties that they're going to face later on. It's here that perhaps we go back to night ability to care mm. for injured animals or to exactly. keep them or to bring them back to life and so on. You mentioning just now about right-wing groups and so on. I mean, in the book there is quite a lot of discussion about the evolution of British fascist groups, initially with the Italian name British Fascisti and later on on a more official and perhaps closer to what we understand today as fascist, because the original group was quite far from what we understand today as mm -hmm. fascist. And this is one of the things that interests me, because it seems that Maxwell Knight and his unit were fairly right-wing, and they adopted a sort of double standard when it came to the two threats posed by communism and later on by Nazi fascism and so on. And reading reviews about the book and other information about Maxwell Knight, like there is this sense that he was a very right-wing person. What is your impression of this? So yeah, he certainly was to the right of centre, no <laughs> doubt about that. And, uh, and I, mean, I suppose the, kind of the, the fundamental question is, did he sympathise with Oswald Mosley's fascists by the late 1930s? And you're absolutely right, the kind of, what, what is meant by the term British fascist changes during the 20s and the 30s. But if we take, let's say, the late 1930s, I think there's good evidence that Maxwell Knight did not fully sympathise with that particular worldview, that, um, that he didn't have that same kind of violent anti-Semitism, that he didn't have um, the particular take on how Britain should be governed, the people like Mosley did. However, I think what really held him back was the fact that he had formed a number of close personal friendships mm -hmm. with people who he'd met when he'd infiltrated this earlier version of the British fascists, the, the British fascisti. And... He was someone who, for whom loyalty was hugely important. And he'd always thought that loyalty not only to your country, but also to your friends were two of the most important things in life. And there comes this moment, just on the eve of the Second World War, when I think he gets them confused. He, uh, he places loyalty towards his friends above loyalty to his country. And, um, and he does this extraordinary thing, and, and I found the evidence in the archives to, um, to show that it really did happen. But he calls up William Joyce. Mm -hmm. William Joyce is the man who goes on to, come, to become Lord Hawhorn. And uh, he calls up Joyce just a few days before the outbreak of the war and tells him he's on a list of people to be arrested. Mm -hmm. And I think he imagined that Joyce would then just get his affairs in order and then be ready when the police came. And uh, Knight probably felt this was an honorable, decent thing to do just to, to make sure Joyce was warned. But instead, Joyce runs away to Germany goes to Berlin and he becomes one of the most important propaganda. propagandists. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, and this was, I think this was easily the biggest mistake of Maxwell Knight's career. 
and um, and it was to do with conflicted loyalties that he had. He placed this personal friendship he had with Joyce above his duties as an MI5 officer. And I, it is to an extent a matter of opinion. I don't think he made that call out of his political beliefs. I don't think he did it because he didn't really like Joyce, but he just he loved what Joyce stood for. Not at all. I don't think he believed in what Joyce stood for, but he did feel this um, this tug of loyalty towards him as a friend. There had also been a previous accident in which Joyce had been injured, I think, and so he might have yeah, exactly. felt, in, if I read the book correctly, Knight might have felt a bit of guilt for the accident that had happened. So yeah. that might have contributed to the whole episode. And I think this leads quite nicely to one of something I wanted to get your opinion on, that, it, that is, what would you characterize it as Maxwell Knight's greatest successes and greatest failures? Perhaps one of the failures in hindsight is certainly notifying Joyce that they were coming together. Yeah, definitely. What are other successes and other failures, you think? I suppose that two main successes were, um, were, on the one hand, his infiltration of the communist underground during the 1930s. And of course, he didn't find out everything there was to be found out, but he got a large number of agents deep inside communist networks. And the information they supplied changed the way that MI5 and therefore the British government thought about the British communist movement. Um, the best example of that is Olga Gray, who, um, who brought down the Soviet spy ring that was operating from the Woolwich Arsenal in 1938. That was, um, that's a generally seen as one of his great mm -hmm. success stories. And, um, but I would argue the other one is the role he played in destroying British fascism during the Second World War. And Which is quite sides, ironic, perhaps, considering where yeah, it started from. <laughs> exactly. It, um, it certainly means he's, he's come a long way <laughs> as a character to be able to, uh, to claim that he'd done that. And um, I mean, what he did during the spring, late spring, early summer of 1940, was to put together a case in the strongest terms possible, to push for the internment of all senior British fascists. And this is the um, Defence Regulation 18B1A, which is a rather long-winded title for, uh, for, for the legislation that effectively means that anyone who belongs to the British Union of Fascists or any other right-wing group can be interned without trial and can be held indefinitely. And of course, if you think about that in contrast to today, to peacetime standards, that's extraordinary. And that's <laughs> a suspension of habeas corpus and so on. And the effect of this was to really kill off British fascism. And when Oswald Mosley tried to, to rein, reinvent himself after the Second World War and to go back into politics, he, um, he failed. And I think this internment during the war played a huge part in that. So I think that can be seen as one of Knight's other big success stories. You seem to be fairly critical in the book though about this policy of internment, not so much for the British fascist side mm. but for the foreign national side. Absolutely. Plenty of foreign nationals were rounded up in spite of having no political right-wing or fascist leanings and they were also interned. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's, uh, there were these, these two big moves. One was to, to intern all the homegrown political extremists the other was to intern up to 27,000 Germans, Austrians, and Italians. And I think the latter has far, far less justification. And it was, it had more to do with this historical prejudice that went back to the hysteria of 1910 and the, 
the fear that all Germans living in Britain actually formed this secret espionage network. Exactly. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and I think, yeah, I mean, the, the evidence, the evidence to, to demonstrate that these people from these countries really were acting as part of an espionage network was, was just non-existent. Mm -hmm. It's as blunt as President Trump today putting travel bans on entire countries. Mm -hmm. It's, um, I think, I mean, in the broadest sense, whenever you, whenever you have an entire ethnic group cordoned off like that, it, is, it can only result from a failure of intelligence. And I this, think is this is a, this is a very interesting those. point because one can see that the internment of British fascists was actually based on solid intelligence, whereas the internment of foreign nationals was largely based on racial or mm. national stereotypes or national origins and so mm. on. Uh, you, you mentioned President Trump, and I won't get started on President <laughs> Trump, but there are so many issues in the book, in spite of being a book about the 1920s and 1930s, that, that are still relevant for today's context and for the nature of spying today, and for the nature of espionage today. Before we move there, however, I think I have one last question about M and his impact. Towards the end of the book, before you go into his second career as a TV personality, you seem to suggest that he was going back, and quite rightly, to identifying the Soviet Union as the main enemy. And here is already at the early start of the Cold War, if you want. You write this paper, the Comintern is not dead, suggesting that in a sense, the UK government should not underestimate the threat of Soviet espionage. What do you think is the influence of M for the Cold War, for how, how espionage would develop in the Cold War? I think, as you rightly say, he was, um, he, he was prescient. He, um, he predicted the threat of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And as a result, when he was proved largely right, he was listened to. So his version of how to take on the Soviet Union had more, was given more credibility within MI5. So in that sense, he has an effect on, um, on the Cold War. But I suppose in a broader sense, he, he also, by this stage, he was a man increasingly out of step. He, um, his heyday really was the 1930s and 1940s. And by the 1950s, although he was being listened to, he, was, um, he wasn't as influential as many other people and many other senior officers at MI5. So I think it would be a mistake to, to exaggerate or to, to talk up too much his, uh, the effect that he had on the Cold War. I mean, yes, he ran certain agents like <laughs> Tom Dreiberg, who, um, who played a big part in, uh, in, in making sure that Guy Burgess couldn't come back to London, or if he did, he'd be prosecuted. He had a number of other small successes. But I think actually the best reference for, for Maxwell Knight during the 1950s is uh, the, his depiction in John le Carre's book, A Perfect Spy, where Maxwell Knight is he's the inspiration for this guy, Jack Brotherhood. And um, Jack Brotherhood is beautifully described in, um, in A Perfect Spy as someone who was increasingly just cross with the, the espionage world around him, with British um, subservience to American uh, intelligence uh, well, chiefs. And, uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think he's someone who was actually rather glad to be able to step into this second career that he'd increasingly built up for himself, which was, strangely, as a BBC natural history broadcaster. Yeah, going back perhaps to the, his second great passion on animals mm. and so on. I mean, looking at the nature of spying and the nature of the tradecraft, if you want, 
One of the key innovations brought by M is probably his reliance on women. Many of his agents, and possibly his best agents, are women. Why do you think this came about? Have you got any sense of how this came about? I think a lot of it has to do with, with, with two things. First of all, he had, he'd studied espionage and as much as he could. He'd, um, and he'd realized that actually there are a number of times in the past when, uh, when female spies had appeared to do great things. So he had that, that idea. Um, the other thing was um, just to do with um, his, the affinity he had with female animals when he was looking after them, which is um, a strange thing to say. But he said that from an early age, he'd always felt more comfortable looking after female animals. And uh, so I think it was just he was, he was happier dealing with female spies than he was with, um, with male spies. Hmm. Something quite interesting you mentioned as well is that by the late 40s, early 50s, Maxwell Knight is a man a bit disconnected from his time. And to an extent, the, the 1950s are a time in which we start having more and more reliance on signal intelligence, for example, as opposed to human intelligence and to the more traditional tradecraft of spying. How do you see this debate playing out at the time and what type of influence do you think he had on British intelligence? I think he was, um, he was a great champion of human intelligence and of course anyone working in intelligence today would say it's not a kind of either-or question but I think for some people in MI5 at that time it almost was and there were people who believed entirely in signals intelligence and felt this was the future and running human agents was, um, was a thing of the past, was something that people did in spy novels and uh, you didn't need to do in this post-war cold age, sorry, cold war age. Um, so, so yeah, I think he, he was increasingly vocal about the need to be running uh, human agents, mainly because he thought this was in threat of just of dying out entirely. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but also I suppose, as he increasingly became identified with that, with running human agents, he was identified more and more with the pre-war years. And I think he was, um, that was part of the reason why, to begin with, in the late 1940s, to begin with, he wasn't listened to so much. He was seen as something of a relic. And then suddenly he comes back when um, the threat of the Soviet Union, which he'd always predicted, um, turns out to be real. <laughs> this is what's interesting for me, because the debate between human intelligence and signal intelligence is one that is also popular in US intelligence. One of the most criticized CIA directors is perhaps Stansfield Turner, the director under the Carter administration, precisely because he had this preference for signal intelligence, and something that the following director, William Casey under Reagan, was very much a critic of and went back to an earlier Cold War type of spying and covert action. Talking about human intelligence, and we mentioned this earlier on in, in the episode, you clearly have a sense towards the end of the book that being a spy is a very difficult job, both in terms of the toll it takes on family life, but also the toll it takes on health and so on. Why do you think that is the case and what do you think can be done to improve the situations? Okay, well, to take on the first question, why is it the case? It's the case because of just the, the, the moral pain of lying. That's um, at the absolute heart of it again and again. And, um, and a lot of these agents working for, for M were doing it for not just a couple of weeks or a couple of months. It would be years. And in one particular case, there's a man called Tom Dryberg who worked for M for a total of 35 years, which is um, extraordinary. He was, in some ways, an exception. 
he was somebody who could, he didn't find lying to people repeatedly as psychologically difficult as most of us would. Um, but for the majority of agents who, who worked for him, as far as I can tell from my research, there was a burden. And, um, and it comes to do with just we, we are, um, I wouldn't say instinctively, but culturally, we are, we are taught to feel pain when we lie. And as a result, if you do that repeatedly, it, it hurts. And you can, uh, you, can, you can kick it down the road. You can um, try and um, forget about it for the present. But later on, that will come back to you. I suppose the other part of it is to do with just the, um, the fear of getting found out. And that with, um, with several of the agents who work for M, um, in particular, I'm thinking of Olga Gray, the, uh, the fear that, uh, that, that Moscow would somehow catch up with her many, many years later. That was something that really came to haunt her. And, um, she moved to Canada, I think. Yeah, she moved mm -hmm. to Canada. And towards the end of her life, she was, uh, there's a journalist from Britain who got in touch with her and said, I, I found out about your work for MI5, and I think it's, it's fantastic. I want to celebrate it. And so he wrote an article about her, um, very much with her. Um, she, she, she played along with this. Mm -hmm. um, however, once she saw the article in the newspaper, she then had a nervous breakdown and was admitted to hospital. And, and such was her fear of there being repercussions oh. from the Soviet Union. So th those, broadly speaking, those are the two things. But I mean, the second question, what can be done to, uh, well, to sort of, uh, one of the things I argue in the book is, is that more could be done to mm -hmm. celebrate and to mark what these people did. But of course, that's, that's dependent on whether or not they want their work yeah. to, be, uh, to be known during their lifetimes. Because it, it could create the same problem, yeah. again, yeah, of yeah. raising new fears of being found out. So. Yeah. But, um, but I, I certainly think posthumously it is possible to, uh, to celebrate the work of these people and just to mark the sacrifice that a lot of them made. <laughs> I mean, much of change in the situation we have today in terms of espionage and in terms of how it is conducted and so on. What lessons do you think we can take from this time for the current debates? For example, the de debate on Russian hacking of elections, both in the United States and in European countries, or the fight against terrorism. Do you think there are some lessons that we can take from not only Maxwell Knight, but the experiences from the 1920s to the 1940s? Yeah, and I think it's, um, it's important to be, because it's, it's a wide-ranging question. I mean, in the broadest sense, the one, the lesson you get from this is, um, is always to be, to be aware of the possibility that a foreign intelligence agency, or even a domestic intelligence agency, is trying to have an effect on the political life of your country, be it trying to shift an election result one way or the other, um, or something else entirely. So I suppose just being beware of that is, is one of the main lessons. Um, the other one is the importance of, uh, of, of human agents, of uh, human intelligence. And, uh, and that's something which, which I think is not, when you see it in this book, you see that none of this could have really happened just using signals intelligence, yeah. even if, the signals intelligence had been fantastic. So I guess when you begin to see what it is possible, the kind of intelligence you can gain from having efficient, well-run agents in positions where they can, where they can find out, where they, in, in highly influential positions, um, you get a sense of just the power mm -hmm. of human intelligence. And I guess that's the kind of one of the other um, abiding lessons from the book. Which I think, I think is something that might have been a struggle in counter-terrorism effort, there seems to be an increasing reliance of, of signal intelligence precisely for the difficulty of creating good mm. human intelligence mm. in that field. 
we're moving towards the end of the episode. There are just a couple of other things I would like to ask. You mentioned John Le Carré and taking Maxwell Knight as a sort of model for one of these characters in the book. And the relation between fiction and fact is one that is fairly prominent in the book, also going back to the 1910 and this surge of passion for spy novels that actually created a sort of concern for an actual German fifth column in Britain and so on. And this is something that, as a researcher, always interests me, this relation between fiction and fact and what role fiction can play between predicting Mm -hmm. and warning about what is going to happen and so on. What do you think is the role of fiction today and what do you think was the role of fiction at the time? I think it was considerable. I think more so than in most other industries in, in the world of intelligence and intelligence gathering, um, fiction plays a, a, a surprisingly prominent part. Maybe prominent is too strong a word, but it plays a bigger role than you might expect and certainly back in the 1920s and 1930s. And the main reason for that is that someone like Maxwell Knight, when he first began to work as a spy, he was given no training. There were no courses he went on. There were no manuals to read. His, uh, his main resource was, um, was, was the, the bank of spinals that he'd read, <laughs> the John Buchan books, the uh, Green Mantle and, and 39 Steps and, and books like that. And, um, and he was obsessed by these books. So not only did these books give him some kind of a guide, some kind of a sense of, of roughly how he thought things should be, but what those books also did was they, they helped to provide the motivation. And a lot of the people who worked for Maxwell Knight, their reason for coming into it was partly patriotic, but it was also just the excitement of espionage. And of course, they didn't really know what espionage was like. All they had to go on were the, um, the novels they had, that they had read, or indeed the spy films. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's, um, it can be a fantastic recruitment tool, the uh, spy fiction, both in the 1920s and 30s, and I think even today. And today. It's quite interesting what you mentioned, because about the training, because Maxwell Knight is actually behind, you seem to suggest, the establishment of a professional training for current spies. And throughout the book, we can see also an evolution of British intelligence agencies. And perhaps this is one of my last questions. Can you tell us a bit more about this evolution? Because at the start, it seems a fairly, perhaps not amateurish, but not particularly professional Mm intelligence services or intelligence agencies, whereas towards the end of the book, we already move towards a situation similar to the one we have today. Could you tell us a bit more about this evolution? Yeah, I, I think you, you definitely could call British intelligence in the early 1930s, at times, amateurish, no doubt about it. Um, and in terms of, uh, first of all, there's very little funding by comparison to today. There were um, I mean, unbelievably few MI5 officers. It's um, amazing to think just how small MI5 was, and, um, and it had very little power and, and weight within Whitehall. And so because of that, it didn't attract the brightest and the best. It wasn't monitored that carefully. And as I was saying before, there, were no, there was no, no detailed and impressive training. Um, and so this did give it an amateurish feel. And there were, there were a lot of mistakes that were made that, that feel totally amateurish by comparison to uh, what you'd expect to happen today. But I think the, the experience of the Second World War had an enormous impact on the way MI5 was run. And I suppose the main difference was that it brought in a much wider range of recruits. It brought in people from um, academic backgrounds, from more professional backgrounds, 
just more intelligent people, people with uh, more impressive qualifications. Um, admittedly, it also brought in someone like Anthony Blunt, who was, uh, was also working for the Soviet Union. But he was the kind of person, in other words, an intellectual, who had never previously stood a chance of getting into MI5 because he was just not the type of person they usually look to. So having a more impressive caliber of person inside MI5, I think, played a big part in it. Um, but also it just became larger, became more important, there was more funding, and the bureaucracy uh, became more detailed and impressive. And the enemy also was taken more seriously, perhaps. Yeah. So these podcasts are also aimed at students who are younger and might have an interest in the topic and so on. And your book is, yes, a biography of Maxwell Knight, but also a collective biography of a lot of people that eventually entered the spying business and so on. Mm. What do you think are characteristics that people should have or they should develop if they are considering entering this business, provided the book was based on the 1920s and yeah. 30s? And I think, well, funny enough, a lot, of, um, a lot of things that Maxwell Knight was looking for in the 30s, a lot of the kind of the basic characteristics and not a million miles away from what some of you look for today. I mean, if you talk to an MI6 officer today about recruitment, they'll talk about three main criteria about access, motivation, and suitability. And um, broadly speaking, Knight was after the same types of things. So access, somebody who has some kind of in to a group or an individual that is of interest to the security service. Um, suitability, I think, breaks down into about five different things. There's, um, there's having a good memory. There is uh, being loyal. There is, I think, also having a sense of humor, funny enough. <laughs> That's something that Maxwell Knight um, wrote about frequently. Someone who doesn't make jokes and doesn't really get them is unlikely to be able to think <laughs> fast on their feet. And then he'd also, another characteristic he looked for, something which made a person suitable to be a spy, was what he called um, being a watcher. Being someone who is just generally a little bit more observant and is used to, uh, to being on the sidelines, watching other people and uh, picking up on details that others might miss. And I suppose the fifth quality that makes someone suitable is, uh, is just the ability to lie, to lie, and to know when someone's lying to you. I think those are um, some of the key characteristics which a lot of people have. I think you had a great quote in the book that I wrote down because I particularly like it. Strip away the mythology, the tradecraft, the gadgets, and the romance, and spying is watching, yes. which is probably as true today as it was. Yeah. At the time of Maxwell Knight. Absolutely. And no coincidence that the current head of MI5, is, uh, his favorite pastime is bird watching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this is my last question, and this is a sort of homage to my favorite pod podcast program that is the Ezra Klein Show. Yes. And Ezra Klein, at the end of the episode, always asks his guests to name three books that they would recommend to the audience if they're interested in the topic writ large. Yeah. So what would be your three books for people interested in this topic? The first book would have to be A Perfect Spy. It's, um, I think it's the most extraordinary exploration of, uh, of espionage, but also fathers and sons and betrayal. It's, um, this is by John Le Carre, of course. You're not um, allowed to nominate your book. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Uh, so that's the, that's the first one. Um, I suppose, I mean, there's so many others to choose from. Another I think I mean, one of the other ones I always think of times like this is, um, is Ben McIntyre's Agent Zigzag, which, um, which is just, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, um, and again, at the heart of it is a question of loyalty. 
So the character at the heart of it ends up working both for British and German intelligence. And um, I suppose what keeps you gripped to the final, final page is whose side he's really on. And, um, and it's a book I love. It's, um, it's funny, it's, it's a good read, but it's well-researched as well. And um, I think I certainly as a writer, I've always admired anyone who can do that level of research, but not make it yeah. painfully obvious to, to the reader. And a third book would be possibly, I love, um, I love the Anthony Blunt biography by Miranda Carter. I think, again, that's just, uh, that looks at something else mainly, which is, um, and the central question in that book is just why did Anthony Blunt work for Moscow for so many years? What, how can you possibly make sense of that decision? And it takes her about 450 pages to, <laughs> to, to get to the answer. Um, but I think, and I think you need that kind of length to really, to, to find out why he did it. And uh, yes, I'd recommend that book as well, just to, to look at the motivation in um, not just spying, but also betrayal. Well, on my part, I strongly recommend your book, which is a great read for those who have knowledge of British intelligence and for those who, like me, have very little knowledge of British intelligence and want to know more about the topic. Henry thank Hemming, you. thank you for being with us. Absolute pleasure.